0: It is an exciting day to be here. I tell you, the lecture Sunday feels like a bit of a personal milestone for me to be here. This is the first time I've ever been counted old in a uh, in a worship service. Thank you, Trey. It's nice to leave my years as young clergy behind. How often do we get in a single worship service to hear an entire book of the Bible? I tell you, we're doing all kinds of things today. But may we not just hear it, but may it change our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of our words, my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. This letter from Paul to Philemon is so full of tenderness that we almost forget what's at stake in it. To hear Paul tell it, everybody, and he does mention everybody, doesn't he? Thanks be to God for Kathy, who took on the task of reading all those names for us. Everybody that Paul mentions, he describes as a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a child. It's almost enough to make us forget that what hangs in the balance as he writes this is fearful and life-changing for a young man named Onesimus. Onesimus is going back as a slave to the master from whom he ran away. And he cannot know what sort of welcome he's going to find. And he has to be afraid of what the future will hold. I mean, I don't want to belabor the obvious, but if he wanted to spend the rest of his life in Philemon's house, Onesimus would not have run away. Now he goes back with the full support of Paul, but also the very real possibility that maybe Philemon won't particularly care what Paul has to say about all this. I mean, certainly, Paul leaves a little wiggle room in today's lesson, doesn't he? Most of the kids here among us, they recognize that wiggle room for what it is. It's a world-class guilt trip that Paul is putting out there for Philemon. Oh, don't worry, Philemon. If you do the right thing, I'll pay you back for anything you lost. Never mind all the things that I've done for you already. Never mind that I'm in prison. Did I mention that in the third, the fifth, the second paragraph? Well, just in case you forgot, I'm still in prison here as I sign off. Me and Epaphras, he's in prison too. We don't have to read particularly closely between the lines here to see that Paul is doing more than just making a gentle suggestion in this letter. He's going to follow up in person. And he's addressed this letter to the whole church so that what Paul says to Philemon is being heard by everyone else. Philemon is going to need a really good PR team. if He's going to ignore what Paul is clearly telling him to do, that he must set Onesimus free, and not only that, he must embrace him as a brother. If Philemon is going to do anything else, he's going to need a really good excuse to make use of this wiggle room. But of course, if humanity has a superpower, it is our talent for really good excuses. Give us a little bit of wiggle room and we will wax the floor. We'll hire a band. We will tap dance around every possible reason for not doing what we ought to do. Give me a little time, Paul. We can imagine Philemon saying, I will do the right thing. Just give me a moment. Let's not get too radical here, Paul. How about if we start by, I just won't punish him for running away, and we go from there. Oh, Paul, I would set Onesimus free. You know I want to, but what kind of precedent would that set for the other slaves? It might set the precedent that they should be free too. Of course, I don't have to imagine very hard this human capacity for making excuses of course, we have it here on the historical record of our own country. This congregation was founded many years after slavery ended in the United States. But if you find the old cornerstone from our original church, you will see on it that when we were founded, we weren't known as the United Methodist Church. We belonged, like pretty much every Methodist church down here, to the Methodist Episcopal Church south. And I bet you don't have to think very hard to guess why the Methodist Episcopal Church South broke off from the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1844. It's the same reason we have a Southern Baptist church today. And look, I am proud of all that our church globally, generally, as a whole, has done to repent and reunite and to heal the wounds that we inflicted. I'm proud that over time we have sought reconciliation with other Christians and we have rejoined ourselves as united Methodists. And I'm proud to be in this congregation. I'm proud that this morning I preached in Adkins Chapel, named for the man who gathered the Methodist clergy of the Mobile District so that they could support the Mobile bus boycott. I'm proud that it was in this sanctuary that Andrew Turnipseed signed a declaration that would mean he spent 12 years in exile because no church in his home district would have him. I am proud of all that this congregation has done and the history it has. And I also know that true repentance for all of us means accounting for all the facts of the story and the fact that there have been Christians among us who have done a whole lot of wiggling in a very little bit of room. There was a time when a whole lot of Christians read the book of Philemon and used it as their excuse for doing the exact opposite of what Paul asked Philemon to do. There was a time when lots of Christians, people whom we now count among saints in heaven even, who would read this letter and their main takeaway was, well, see, there was even slavery in the New Testament. And Paul didn't exactly say that it was wrong every time for every person in every place. He only told Philemon to free this one person onesimus so surely there's some wiggle room here and it's okay if we deny freedom to millions of other folks right there was a time when a lot of Christians read this book in this particular way and when we look back on a shameful chapter like that it might be tempting for us to say why couldn't Paul have been a little clearer 25 verses is pretty short but maybe it could have been even shorter Maybe Paul could have said, Philemon, slavery's wrong. Stop it now and tell everyone else to stop it forever. I'll be there soon. Thanks. Bye. Even now, with the benefit of hindsight, we want to make excuses. Oh, if only it had been a little bit clearer. Or only if he had made it clear what's going to happen to Philemon if he doesn't comply but maybe the problem isn't the words and how clear they are or aren't. And maybe the problem is not in the enforcement measures. Maybe it's a problem of the heart. And maybe hearts are harder to change even than one man's behavior. But maybe a change of heart is our only hope in this world. The night before Jesus was crucified, They found him in a garden. The soldiers came, and his disciples were so riled up by the band that had come against Jesus that one of his disciples took out a sword and lifted it up and chopped off the ear of somebody who was in that gang. And Jesus looked at this disciple, Peter, and he said, Peter, don't you get it? If I wanted to stop this at the point of a sword, I've got 10,000 angels I could call to deal with this little problem right here. God's not trying to win points or even win control. God has all the glory God needs and all the control. What God longs for is to win our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah when faced with exile and the utter destruction of his homeland in Israel, gave a promise to the people of Israel that there would come a day when God's people will no longer do the word simply because it's written on a tablet of stone or in a Bible on paper or even because of the enforcement measures. There will come a time, Jeremiah said, when God's people will do the will of God because it is inscribed on their hearts. And this is what God wants not the kind of obedience that comes out of fear of enforcement or simply because we don't know what else to do. God's longing is for our hearts to beat in time with God's very own. God is reshaping the way we think, the way we desire. He is shaping our heart. And that's why Paul is trying in every possible way he can to say, that's what I long for you, Philemon. I don't just want you to free Onesimus. I want you to realize that he is your brother. I want to change everything. Not just your household, not just your behavior, not just this one thing, not just this one guy's status because I happen to like him. I want it to go all the way down until every heart is transformed. The relationship." is everything. And that's why Paul calls in so many favors here, name drops so many beloved people. It's because he hopes that he has won the favor of Philemon and that that favor can be extended to someone else now. The relationship of favor is what God longs for us all. That's the whole point of this. We don't have a relationship with Jesus because we think that, that that will be the means to our salvation. We have a relationship with Jesus. Because a relationship with Jesus Christ is our salvation. There's nothing more. There's nothing bigger. We don't get anything else out of the deal. We get Jesus. The relationship. A heart that beats in time with his and a relationship that not even death will be able to end. There's nothing better than to know and be known by the God who made us. God doesn't want anything less than your whole heart. Because our heart is at the root of all our actions and all our thoughts. And that means that the salvation of God is going to touch everything about us. Salvation matters for how we treat one another. It matters for how we worship. It matters for how we serve. It matters for our evangelism. It's interesting. I was talking to a friend recently. She was in a different conversation with another friend. And that other friend was a part of a a smaller denomination that makes the bold and outrageous claim that they have a monopoly on the gospel. If you're not a part of their church, then you are not truly saved. And so my friend is talking to her friend and said, so basically all your friends think that this is pretty much it for me. I'm headed to hell even though I'm a Christian. Her friend said, yeah, pretty much. So my friend responds, you don't think that, do you? And her friend says, well, no. To which my friend said, thank you. Isn't that an interesting response? Thank you. As if we have the right to expect that from someone else. I wonder what your response would be to somebody who comes in and immediately begins questioning your faith. Begins questioning whether it is of any ultimate value. I bet your hackles might get a little bit raised. I imagine that's why in a study of the most effective evangelistic churches in the country, those that are growing not just by adding folks with church backgrounds, but adding and converting adults who've never heard the gospel before. The churches that grow the most were surveyed, and they found that the least reason out of all reasons, a reason so small as to be statistically insignificant, that people give for why they started looking for the good news of Jesus Christ is that somebody told them, look, you're going to hell if you don't. Turns out that doesn't win many hearts. And almost no one comes to an adult profession of faith when the conversation starts that way. Turns out that in an evangelism relationship is everything. The number one reason why people pursuing a relationship with God, the number one reason they begin to give for how they started on a path towards professing that Jesus is Lord, the number one reason they give is that someone they knew and admired invited them into the church. Relationship is everything. And yet, statistically, the average United Methodist will invite someone to church once every 33 years. Sometimes we're going to have to bear the cost of the relationship. We have to do something that feels a little uncomfortable. In fact, that's what the relationship means, is that we are the ones willing to bear the costs of the good news. Paul says it to Philemon here, if he has cost you anything, if you are out in any way, let me know and charge it to my account. Here, I've signed it with my own hand. And I will bear the cost. In a world that is in desperate need for good news, the question we are being asked is what cost would we bear to show our love? We want evangelism. We want reconciliation. We want repentance, but we often don't want to bear the cost of it. Will we go out of our way? Will we make ourselves uncomfortable? Will we inconvenience ourselves? Or do we expect everyone else to bear the cost up front? Do we expect the, t- the change to come at their expense? Or is there some cost, some change that we are willing to bear ourselves? If we are willing to bear it, then not only they, whoever they are, but we ourselves can be changed. And we discover that our hearts are being won and wooed by God all over again. It seems like it'd be so much easier if we could just impose our will at the point of a sword and a law written in stone or just by the overwhelming weight of popular opinion that goes our way. But instead, the only option we're given is to appeal to the heart. And to refuse for set, to settle for anything less than a relationship. For where would be? Where would we be if Christ had settled for anything less than a relationship with us? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.